All right, let's let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse probably 18 to 24 this morning. And uh, get ready to use your Bible again because we'll probably go, be going back to Deuteronomy also and, uh, and some other places in Hebrews as I have been out of Hebrews for a while because of a bit of a break, but um, back in it. And I just want to mention that this book has really been a very rich theological book. It is a very Christological book. Christ is the center of it. Um, and of course, it has a purpose of this book to be deliberate, to encourage every listening, every following, every learning believer to press on in this Christian race. That's where I kind of left you last, last time, running the race. Uh, and that when we do run the race, that the growing knowledge of God will increase one's faith, and cause all believers to hear and see what God is doing. You got that? To see and hear what God is doing, ultimately to understand where God's grace actually brings you. In, in a very real way, God's doing a big thing. He really is. And sometimes we don't see it as a big thing. We don't see salvation as a huge thing. I was just reading the missionary letter from Jamie Winship, and he had a story in there about an Iraqi Air Force pilot. If you read it, he was shot down over the Arabian Gulf in their conflict with Iran. He said it was a horrible sound, the pilot told couples who were listening to his story that the surface-to-air missile that struck his French-made Mirage jet caused it to burst into flames. He ejected into the ocean, and he floated in the Mediterranean Sea for three days. He watched the sharks circle himself. And he could see the expressions on the faces of the Iranian sailors as they patrolled and searched the area for him. He prayed two things. He was a Muslim. One was that he would be invisible to the enemy. And the second that he'd ask God either to kill him quickly or save him big. Jamie Winship and his friend Jan were listening to the story in their apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. And, uh, of course, he stopped right there. And they said, well, what happened? You can't just leave us right there. He says, an American aircraft carrier picked me up. How big is that? Now, that's just an earthly story. God is doing something big. And I believe that in this part of Hebrews, he wants his audience who's being tempted to go back to the old religious system, which is easy, which doesn't bring persecution upon them. They don't lose anything. They get their, actually, they get their respect back. And all the things that go with being a Jew at that time in Judaism, they were tempted to go back. And he is saying to them, wait a minute, don't go back because God's doing a bigger thing 
than he ever did with the Jews in the Old Testament. He's doing a huge thing, and I don't want you to miss it. See, if we take our eyes off the goal and start looking back, we will not finish the race. And if we keep our eyes on the finish line and continue to grow in our understanding of what awaits at the finish line, we will conclude that there is nothing better. There is nothing better that can be offered to you or sufficient to replace what God has given you in Christ Jesus. There's nothing bigger. There is nothing better. That's the whole book of Hebrews. If you miss that, you miss the whole thing. You see, this is where our problem lies, though. We don't think enough about heavenly realities. We don't think enough about our privilege and our blessing that we have in Christ. We are so distracted by the temporal. We are so distracted and overloaded by the information dump that each of us experiences every single day. We're consumed by that. People twittering and texting and second-by-second motions of what people are doing all over the place. All empty waste of time. In fact, it robs us. It's worthless. It robs us and it crowds out any time to think about eternal realities, which will actually help you endure the Christian race. Because remember, remember, in Hebrews, what we need is what? Endurance, right? And what gives us endurance is truth. That's, that's, that's what's set before us. So I would like all of you today to ponder what a difference Christ makes. Now, this message is in two parts. So you, if you come to the first part, you have to come to the second. Because the second gives you the bigger picture. But it starts with the first part. And... God offers us in Christ, what God offers us in Christ and what Jesus has accomplished is immeasurably superior than anything else that could ever be offered to you. The Jews had Abraham. They had the Abrahamic covenant with all the messianic promises. Yet all the Old Testament saints died without seeing the promise fulfilled in Jesus. But here is the direction of our text this morning that the readers have come to the actual fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. That is, to Jesus Christ and all that He actually has bought for them and brought to them. And we have it too. We have the fulfillment of the promise. We are on the other side of the cross. In fact, our text is designed to help us understand what we have not come to, and then it shows us what we actually have come to. 
Now let me just show you real quick. Verse number 18 of chapter 12. Notice what it says in verse number 18. For you have not come to. You see that in your Bibles? You see that in your Bibles? Do you see that in your Bibles? In your electronic Bibles, in your paper Bibles, in your cell phone Bibles, whatever Bibles you're looking at, look at a Bible. It's saying there in the Word of God that, listen, you have not come to something. But then look at verse number 22 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. But you have come to. Now, those two little phrases there are supremely important for our text because it helps us to run with greater endurance because it gives us an understanding as to where we are standing in regard to the Lord God. Either you are in His fiery presence or you are in His favorable presence. If a person is in God's fiery presence, that means their approach to God will prove to be deadly because it's the wrong way. If that person is in the favorable presence of God, that means that their approach to God will be welcomed. But only because they have received Jesus Christ. Only because they have a mediator between them and God. Only because they have been sprinkled with His blood, having been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. See, Vitally important. But here's the mistake people are making. They see the small picture, they only see part of the picture, and they don't see the whole picture. They are only looking at part of the revelation and not all the revelation. So see, this is what they this is the mistake people make. They cling to the old easy way. Or they cling to partial revelation, therefore according to Hebrews, neglecting the truth, neglecting so great a salvation offer to God, they're not looking at it as great, or they ignore it, even despise God's final revelation in Jesus Christ, where it already said in Hebrews, then they trample underfoot the message or the person of the final say in how God saves people. Or what they finally do is they fall back to the old religious system and escape any trouble or persecution that's going to come with the name of Jesus Christ. Or the trouble that comes in running the Christian race. It's a long-distance race. It is not an easy race. You cannot do it in the flesh. You must have God's Spirit. You must be filled with God's Word. So let's not make these mistakes. But instead, we should desire to understand two things about where we are heading in the race since we have come to Christ. Why? Because if you are going to run this race, this Christian long-distance race with any kind of successful endurance, you must know where you have come from, and you must know where you're going. You must know where you have not come to, 
and you must know where you are, you have come to. That's how he packages the text this morning. And so what I want you to see, the first point, which I'll labor for this morning, is this, that today I want you to park in this text with me, and I want you to see two things. There's two mountains that are talked about in this text, two different mountains. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. The second mountain is Mount Zion. Now, these two mountains are very significant in all of the Word of God, but they're, these two mountains are vitally important. Look what it says in verse number 18, because it says this, and I'll read it. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. And let me just stop there. The mountain he is talking about here is Mount Sinai. Now, that is the mountain in which Moses received the Ten, Command Ten Commandments. He is saying here, in other words, you have, you have not come to Mount Sinai, or in another way of saying it, Christians are not stuck at the foot of of Mount Sinai, they have gone on from there to another mountain. Now, what mountain have they gone on to? They have gone on to Mount Zion, and I'm not going to be preaching on that this morning, but I want you to see verse 22. It says, For you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. I'll just stop right there because that text is loaded with seven things God lists that say, okay, you have not come and you're not stuck at Sinai, but you have come to Zion. And what a blessing, what a great thing God has done for you when you reach Zion. And I'll describe and define what Zion means next week. But see, before you get to Zion, you've got to go to Mount Sinai. Before you get to Zion, you must go to Sinai. Because what we learn at Sinai about the character of God is so much needed to understand why you must be saved in the first place. But then even after you're saved, that God has not changed in who he is because you've become a believer. He is the same God, but what happens is that once you become a believer, you learn more about him. You learn, you learn more about what he has done. In fact, when you learn about and understand the justice of Almighty God, then the grace of God is all, more, all the more sweeter, Right? When you realize what God saved you from and how you couldn't rescue yourself from that, then the grace of God becomes something that is so deep and wide that you just swim in it like it's a vast ocean. So from our passage, we can glean, and I like to glean about six things showing forth God's power and majesty and holiness and kind of show you where he's going with this for our own sake this morning so we can understand it in our own Christian life that these characteristics that he's listing here 
really emphasized are emphasized by earthly, natural signs, which always usually accompany God's presence in the Old Testament. So look what it says in verse number 18. It says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In other words, the mountain you've come to can't be approached. It's deadly to approach this mountain. And then also, it says there, it lists some things, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, meaning that it's an inapproachable mountain. It says, secondly, this mountain is consumed by a blazing fire. In other words, it's ignited to burn. It's At this mountain, there is thick, black darkness. You can cut the darkness with a knife. There's also deep gloom at the mountain. And it ends also in verse number 18 that there is whirlwind at the mountain. In fact, that word actually means cyclonic winds or hurricane winds. If anything's going on like that on a mountain, you don't go near that thing. You know why? Because your life is in danger. But all those things, all these signify that there was an infinite distance between God and man. In fact, so frightful and awesome was the display of God's power that the people begged God, speak only through a human messenger like Moses. Don't speak to us directly. In fact, verse number 19 says that. It says, And to the blast of a trumpet, and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. In other words, the people would say, Stop speaking, we can't take it. It's too much for us. It's too overwhelming. We cannot take it. So, well, just take your Bibles and turn back to Deuteronomy where we picked this up in the Old Testament. Of course, we now we see the people of Israel. They are three months after coming through the Red Sea. And this is what they come to. They come to Mount Sinai. And this is what's going on there. And so their first real display of the personality of God is displayed on this mountain and they are shaking in their boots by God's presence. Deuteronomy chapter 5, look at verse 25. It says, Now then we should die for this great fire will consume us If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. Verse 26, Deuteronomy 5. For who is there, who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Verse 27. Go near and hear all the Lord our God says. They're saying this to Moses. Then speak to us that the Lord our God speaks to you, whatever the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do. So the people are saying, they're responding to the presence of God, and they're so afraid of what they 
have heard and what they have experienced by these natural things going on in the mountain that they say, listen, we can't take this because we know if we, if we hear it any longer, it's going to kill us. It's going to, we're going to die. So Moses becomes the representative. In fact, if you take your Bibles and go back to Hebrews, the present tense of the verb is used in verse number 20 to signify that the command that God gave them, well, the present tense really presents a command as ringing constantly in their ears. Look at verse number 20 of Hebrews 12. For they could not bear the command. And what's the command? Even If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They couldn't bear that particular command. All this saying this, that the Sinai experience was a terrifying one. So see, people don't see God as terrifying. They don't see God in this way. And that's not good. You must see God like this. Because if you don't, you will not be afraid of him. So the Sinai experience, even for Moses, it's, with its audible and its visible aspects produced fear in him, and under the Sinai covenant, there was a sense of danger in approaching God and distance that separated the worshiper from God. Look at verse 21. This is what it says about Moses, chapter 12. And so terrible was the sight that Moses says, said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now just think for a minute. Moses is shaking in his boots at the presence of God. He's trembling, and it says he's full of fear. There's nothing left inside of him but fear. So this whole section is making it very clear and emphasizing the frightening and inapproachability of this God. In other words, all that took place on Sinai to which God brought Israel was not the completion of the Abrahamic promise. What do I mean by that? Well, on the mountain of Sinai, God brought the Ten Commandments, right? Well, what, what, what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? The law, the Bible says, was added to keep them in the knowledge of sin. So now you have a God who's, who's presenting himself like this before the people. They're full of fear. And now Moses gives them the commandments, the Decalogue, and the people are reminded every day that because of their sin, they're in trouble with this God. In fact, Paul brings up in Romans in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase and then he says again to the Galatian church, why the law then? Here's the question, why the law? Why the Ten Commandments? It says in Galatians it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made.
But remember, according to the writer of Hebrews, the law was never the completion of the promise. In fact, if you just like to slip back a minute to Hebrews chapter 7 and look at verse number 18, He says, for on the, and I'll mention this again, but he says, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. So see, in other words, if I take you back in your minds, and if you haven't been there just by way of memory, the two proper ways a person may have access to God, may approach God in the Old Testament system was first, the, prop, the first proper way was to have access to God through the law, through the keeping and obedience of the law. But a second way, and both went together, they weren't separate, a second proper way was to have, to have access to God, to approach God, was through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system. So that proved to leave one with a real issue, a real problem. And the, that the two proper ways to have access to God were ineffective. In this sense that the law was weak and useless, unable to make anything perfect, as I just read, that the priests were weak and imperfect and sinful and died, and the sacrificial system was repetitive over and over again and could make no one perfect. So the bottom line was that the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system could not give a person continual access to God and make one right before a holy, just just God. And why was that? Because there was no escaping the human estrangement from God which followed sin. All the efforts of the priests, all the sacrifices offered could not restore a lost relationship completely. Why did God do it that way? Well, why was it necessary for the old system to be replaced by the new system? It could not be achieved for this reason, because it could not achieve the completion God intended. And so, see, this, this Mount Sinai is, again, showing the people how they just can't approach God any old way. Even the system God put in place was ineffective to bring and restore a relationship to the living God. See, believers need it to have a priest who can give them constant access to God and make them perfect. That's what they needed. Make them acceptable before a holy and a just God. Before a, a God in whom people and men tremble. Before a God in whose presence was a fiery presence. Before a God who, if you approached Him in the wrong way, you would be killed. So the Old Testament method of providing for God's people did not produce holiness in them, and it did not perfect anyone eternally. So the point is this in Hebrews, Christ makes all the difference. See, the grace, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from who? Jesus Christ. That 
very verse is right on the top of Mount Nebo in Jordan. That's the only verse I saw. That's the perfect verse. I wish they understood it. Those who come to see it. See, so the Bible is really saying to us, listen, Christ makes the difference because he is the final fulfillment of the promise. Well, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but then listen what it says in verse 19, and on the other hand, I love when it says that and does that in Scripture, but on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Wait a minute, here's Christ who now gives one the ability to draw near to God. So Jesus Christ becomes the high priest, And what does he do for us? He enters into the holy place made, not made with hands, as it says in Romans 9. What does he do? He passes into the heavens, past the second curtain, into the holy sanctuary, and he enters heaven itself, Hebrews chapter 9. And then Jesus was hidden from every one's sight when heaven took him, but... Jesus passed into the presence of God himself as a man, as the God-man. And in Hebrews 9, 24, it says this, Now he appeared in the presence of God the Father for us. For us. So see, Jesus is the one who makes the difference, who adds the revelation of God that could save us from the wrath of this God and bring us actually into his presence completely as one holy, as one made perfect. So the heavens took the Lord Jesus Christ, he entered into it, and now he sits as a victor on the right hand of the majesty on high, and he must remain there until the time comes for God to restore all things. Until then, until then, we ought to reap something from a passage of scripture like this we ought to reap an understanding of the character of god and how we can respond to his character in a right way not in a wrong way so what did the people learn about the character of god that day what did they learn well the first thing they learned from Deuteronomy 5 in verse number 24 is that they learned that the presence of God was awesome. It was great. It says in Deuteronomy 5, 24, and behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. So that day, God wanted them to to experience that part of his character. A second thing they learned was this, that God communicates and he does so in understandable words. Deuteronomy 5.24, and we have heard his voice, it says, in the midst of the fire we have seen today that God speaks with men. Now, this was completely different than all the gods around the nation of Israel, than all the gods Israel knew, even in Egypt. None of the gods spoke to the people. They were just graven images made by men. They, men offered sacrifice to them. Men would pray to them, but they never spoke to them. Here they learn that God speaks. This was an incredible revelation that God is, speaks. And not only that, Deuteronomy 5.24, that God lives, that God's alive. Changes everything. Wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not serving some dead deity. 
I'm serving a living God who has an awesome presence that if, I, if, if I'm not careful, he could easily consume me. And that they learned this too, and this was a very important thing they learned. They cannot approach God in any old freestyle manner. To do so would prove deadly even if irrational animals wandered in too close to the presence of God at Mount Sinai, they would be killed. That is to conclude, if rational human beings came too close, the same thing would happen to them, death. So they learned also, and maybe most importantly, about the fiery, terrifying presence of God. Now, what does that teach us? Well, to learn what they learn, that we can learn also today, even as believers, even as those who know Christ, that the fear of the Lord is a very important part of our life, to understand it correctly. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 4 and verse number 10, because this gives a sense to us what they learned that day, what was, the, what was the main message God was teaching them at the foot of Mount Sinai? Well, you'll find that in this passage of Scripture, this is what they remembered in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may... Let them hear my words, notice what it says, so they may learn to fear me. There is the lesson. And then it says this, all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children, what? The fear of the Lord. Because it must, at Sinai we learn to fear God. At Sinai, we learn that the law magnifies our sin and makes us more condemned before this God. That's what we learn. And it says also there in verse number 11, Deuteronomy 4.11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire at the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud and thick gloom verse 12 then the lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire and you heard the sound of words but you saw no form only a voice verse 13 so he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform that is the ten commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone the lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it so watch yourselves carefully, verse 15, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So the people learned that day that this is a God to be feared. This is a God who is someone you cannot go up against. This is a God in which you will not win. This is a God who cannot be approached by your own philosophy of life, by your own religious system, by anything you come up with. 
You cannot approach God. You only can approach God in one way. And that way was given to Abraham as a promise that we have fulfilled in our hearing this morning, and that promise is Christ. That through Jesus Christ, I can have access to God. I can approach God. In fact, it tells us in the Word of God, I can come with confidence boldly to the throne of God. Only through Christ, though. Any other way, even today, will cause that person to remain under God's condemnation and God's wrath. And if they try to do it any other way, or go in any other way, they will be consumed and sent to an eternal destiny without Christ. So all peoples should learn this lesson. And believe me, Christians ought to learn this lesson, the lesson that they learned at Sinai, that to hear God is to fear God, is to obey God. They all go together. But sometimes when we think about the fear of God, we think all wrong about it. We have to go beyond the knee-knocking fear of God, because that's part of it, to what the fear of God actually does for us as believers, as someone who's come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the same in the Old Testament when they understood rightly the full character of God and took the full revelation of God is not only a God of wrath, but He's a God of loving kindness. And He's a God of truth. And He's a God of compassion. And He's a God who comes to the rescue. See, now I have both of those, and I begin to understand the God of the Bible, and I understand now more in Jesus Christ what God intended for you and I. But this whole thing about the fear of God, understood rightly, really brings great benefits. Just to show you what I mean, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm, a few passages of Scripture in Psalm, and I just want to read you, I, I looked at, a section um, on the fear of God, and there were so many passages of Scripture, there's no way that I can look at all of them. But I wanted to take a, look at, take a look at some of them from the book of Psalms to give you a sense. The benefit we have when we properly fear God. Look what it says in Psalm 25, verse number 14, that God shares His secrets with those who fear Him. Psalm 25, verse 14, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will make them know His covenant. See, when we fear God properly, He lets us in on it. What does it mean? Actually, that word could be translated friend. That God lets His friends in on what He's doing. And he, he tells them the truth. He lays it out before them. Then look at Psalm 33, verse number 18. Those who fear God, really, God watches over them. In verse 18, it says of Psalm 33, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him and those who hope for His loving kindness. So, the eye of God is on those who what? Who fear Him. Who have respect for Him. Who want to hear and obey him 
All right? Fear is, all that is included in this kind of fear is that I want to obey God. I, hey, listen, I want to do what he says. I want to approach him in the right way. I want to honor him and what I think and what I do in my life. I want to do what God wants me to do. In fact, here's another passage that the angels are given the job of protecting and delivering those who fear God. Psalm 34 and verse number 7. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So God is looking out for those who fear him. He's protecting those who fear him. He's rescuing. You ever sense that God has rescued you from something? When we pray from Matthew 6, Lord, deliver me from temptation. We're asking God to rescue us from the power of temptation that could come against us, that in the flesh alone we would easily give into it. But God steps in with his word and the power of his spirit, and he rescues you from where temptation could lead you, and it leads you to sin, right? And you know where sin takes you, right? It destroys everything in your life. See, God promises that those who every day get up and learn to fear me that i am there providing protection i am there ready to deliver you ready to watch out for you and then psalm 34 in verse number nine the fear of the lord will be will give you freedom from your craving it says oh verse 34 chapter 34 verse 9 oh fear the lord you saints for those who fear him there is no want. When you fear God, you don't have any wants. Why is that? Because, you know, you realize, you grow, and you say, you know what, Lord? Lord, you provided all my needs. I have way more than I even need. You have kept me, protected me, supplied my needs. I don't have any wants. Not only that, you provide it for my greatest need, eternal salvation, the ability to approach you through Christ. What else do I want? It's like the psalmist who says, I will dwell in the, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, eternally. Why? Because I have no wants, I have no needs. And so the Bible says, listen, those who fear him will have freedom from craving things. And then Psalm 147 and verse 11, the fear of the Lord will make you a delight to him. You want to be a delight to God? Look what it says in verse 11 of Psalm 147. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. See, the Lord God finds delight in those who fear him. Those who hear him and obey him all go together. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 13, it says that we're guaranteed the pity and compassion of God to those who fear Him. It says, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. We're guaranteed the permanent love of God to those who fear Him. God in Psalm 103 verse 17 but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children of course and the 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. It has to start here. It says in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm, 1, Psalm 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The one who may avoid the snares of death. It's really, the fear of the Lord satisfies. Psalm, back in Proverbs 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So the one who fears God, the one who fears God, can approach God because they will see the only way to approach God is through Jesus Christ and they will obey the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and after they come to Christ they will have a clearer, a better understanding of what it means to fear Him. In fact, it was when the Apostle Peter with all his issues he had dealing with other cultures because he was, a, he was a Jew of Jews, that's for sure. And when God was trying to teach him that, wait a minute, God's not a respecter, God's not a respecter of any man, then Peter came to this conclusion in Acts chapter 10. And he says this in verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality. And then he said this, but in every nation of men, those who fear him and does what is right is welcome to come. And then he qualifies it with this, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, because he is the Lord of all. So he is saying to them, listen, anyone who comes and learns the terror of God and God bringing wrath upon a human being that they could have peace with God through this person, Jesus Christ, because of what he accomplished on the cross and now have access to God. Well, then everything changes. Jesus Christ makes the difference in my approach to God. I will not be killed. I will not be consumed. I don't even have to be terrified anymore, even though I have a respectful rightful fear of God, but I come boldly into God's presence. So see there, in this passage, there is a sharp contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And it, it's, it's meant to be, to show a drastic difference that Christ makes in our approach to God the Father. The sense on Mount Sinai is very cautious. The sense on Mount Sinai is it's a cautiousness about how you approach God, so keep back so you do it the right way. But on Mount Zion, a believer finds encouragement to come boldly into the presence of God. As Hebrews already said in chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of God, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Whoa, this is... A, this is this is revolutionary to those who heard this message. So you see, when one becomes a biblical Christian, the whole economy in which they belong becomes grand 
and glorious and the atmosphere is quite different between the two mountains. One is the atmosphere of fear, which is needed, but the other is a festive atmosphere. That at the it's it's as if one has finished a great race successfully and you come to the end, there's a festive atmosphere. Or it's, it's like one who finishes a great battle and they won. What's, what's at the end? A festive atmosphere. So see, the Bible is really saying to us, and the second point that I'm going to bring up next week is that those who are in Christ are now heading for the festive and joyful economy of heaven. And that put before us in running the race at the at the finish line is what gives us endurance to continue because what God promises he will not take away in other words we are heading for home and home is described by another mountain but this time it's not Mount Sinai it's Mount Zion then it lists at least seven characteristics of what believers are headed for and are to look forward to. Now, let me, I'm going to just read them, and then I'm going to close. Look what it says in verse 22 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. So, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have come past it to the teaching of grace through Christ. And this, look what it says. This is what I have to look forward to, and you in Christ... I have to look forward to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Wow! That's what we have to look forward to. See, that's the greatness of salvation. I'm going to unpack that next week. But I want to ask you a question. Whom do you fear? You have to come to Mount Sinai first. You have to know the fear of God, the awesomeness of God, that God is the judge, that he makes the rules He sets out the plan on how he saves you, not you. And then he saves you, not you. See, but I must fear him in this sense. Lord, whatever way you choose to save a human being, that's the way I want to come. And and then the, the Father says, well, the way I've chosen is Christ. I've chosen the cross. I've chosen Christ to bear the wrath and penalty for your sins, that the wrath you saw on Mount Sinai is the wrath and more of it that I poured out on my son for all the sins of all those who would come and believe in me through Christ. See, that's the way I've chosen. I have not chosen any other way. No religious system can save you. You, No philosophy of life can save you. No would-be God that you create in your own mind and your life can save you. Only Jesus Christ can save anyone. Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Catholic, Baptist, whoever you come from, whatever your background is, it's Christ who you must come to to be saved. But I must fear him. 
and then my fear changes to joy when I understand what he's done. So see, who, whom do you fear? And where are you heading? Are you heading to God's fiery presence or are you heading to God's favorable presence? Where are you heading? You are heading somewhere today. I'll guarantee you that. You are heading somewhere today. And today, only through Christ can you be heading into God's favorable presence. So I pray today that you would come. If wherever you're at, if you have a bunch of doubts in your mind, come anyway. Come with all your sin and all your baggage. Come. And, and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, then grow in your knowledge so your faith increases so you can fear God rightly in not only being keenly aware of listening to his word, but also putting his word into practice by your obedience. Because he's still the same, he is still the same God and how do I know that? Look at how he ends chapter 12 of verse number, chapter 12, verse number 29. Look at how he ends it. Our, for our God is a what? Consuming fire. He wants to show the people, listen, if you want to go back to your old system, to your old ways, to your old philosophy, then go there. But I want to remind you of this. God is still a God of a consuming fire you will stand before him you will be responsible for your actions and your decisions I want to let you know that so you haven't seen God as big as he wants to show himself you have shrunk him down into a little box where you control him and he says you want to do that you go back to your Judaism you go back to your religious system you go back to the easy way go back there but God's still a consuming fire he hasn't changed because he offers free grace through Christ. He has not changed. So where do you stand? That's it. There's no other place to go. I, I love when God corners us. He corners us. And he says, okay, what are you going to do? Let's pray. Lord, I think the greatest thing that we can pray today is that we would hear God and see what he's doing. And I do ask you, Lord, that all who are here this morning, you know who they are. You know where they're heading. You know what they're putting their trust in. You know who they're putting their trust in. But I pray, Lord, that you would change all that for those who have thought wrongly and have depended on things that will not save them. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show them if they have never confessed you and as Lord and Savior, if they have never come to repent and turn from their unbelief to trust in Christ, the only way to approach our Heavenly Father, then I pray, Lord, today would be the day they ask you to save them. If those who are here that you know, know you, I pray you would grow all of us, Lord, in a proper understanding of how to fear you because you are still the same.
But I thank you, Lord, that through Moses you gave the law, but through Christ came grace, and that we have grace available to us every moment of every day. And thank you, Lord, that the fear of God actually benefits us because you're for us. So we don't have to fear you with trembling fear. We have to fear no one because if you're for us, no one could be against us. So thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Help us to see the greater picture of what you're doing and help us to see how great salvation is and where we're actually heading to that Mount Zion. And I pray we rejoice in it, that we would understand that festive atmosphere that we're heading to even though this race that we're in is hard sometimes it's long sometimes it's overwhelming the lessons you want to teach us sometimes we feel like they crush us but lord we know you'll never give us anything more than we can handle so i just ask you lord develop our character Give us endurance to run the race and help us to keep our eyes on the goal and where we're heading so we can do it with an attitude of joy and with a, a strength that comes from you. And I thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen.